It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're, lo- we're both longtime MMA journalists, and for the last 11 years, we've been meeting here every week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Ben, we're coming out of Thanksgiving weekend. There was not a lot of MMA action happening over the weekend. PFL had a championship. I understand there was a boxing match that took up a lot of people's attention, and much in the same vein, there's not a ton of stuff happening this weekend either. The UFC has a card on ESPN television going to be headlined by Benil Dariush and Armand Sarukian in a lightweight contender fight. Co-main was supposed to be Dan Hooker against Bobby Green. Dan Hooker had to pull out. He has been replaced by Jalen Turner, who will now fight Bobby Green. Not a terrible card, to be honest, because you round out those two fights with Rob Font and Davison Figueredo, Sean Brady and Kelvin Gastelum, and Puna Haley Soriano against Dustin Stolfus. And you got some known names, some old friends, you might say, down on the preliminary card in Clay Guida and Misha Tate, not fighting each other, of course, but involved in separate mixed martial arts contests. We're going to spend just a few minutes, I think, at the top of the show today talking about that fight night event, and then we're going to get into a bevy of listener questions that came in this week. So we will have an all-questions-considered episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast this week, something we do from time to time. I guess before we get into it, though, how you doing? Are you feeling in any kind of uh, Thanksgiving hangover? You know, I feel pretty well stuffed with mashed potatoes and prime rib, but yeah. uh, I got no complaints about that. I think everything went about as well as it could go. Honestly, I was a little surprised when I looked at this fight night card and saw Misha Tate's on the prelims. Yeah, you got, and Clay Guida, both of them. I mean, and plus, I'm not going to let us talk at all about this card without mentioning that it also features what I still feel is one of the funniest fighter names out there, Wellington Terman. Yeah, that's made up. Thurston Howell the third ass name right there, <laughs> Wellington Terman. I love it. But, you know, between uh, Davison Figueredo and Misha Tate, Chad, you got like former champions and shit on this card. That Yeah. That is not necessarily something you see at every JSF era. I mean, 
a main card where everybody has a Wikipedia page is not necessarily something you see at every one of these fight night cards. Uh, and then to also see notable names even on the prelims and another encouraging sign that we're getting out of the damn apex to do it. Going out there to Austin, Texas, you go put all these things together and I go, this actually feels like you're doing an event. It actually feels like a UFC event rather than just UFC content. Yeah, we'll be down there at the Moody Center. Granddaddy, Granddaddy of, them of them all. Yeah. Over there in Austin, Texas. Uh, I guess not a, quite in the same vein as Wellington Terman, but I would also like to call your attention to a featherweight on this card whose first name appears to be Melquiziel. Okay. Melquiziel Costa. I feel confident that you are nailing it. <laughs> you think I pronounced that yep. correctly? All right, let's talk a little bit about the main event here before we move on, because it's a fairly important 155-pound fight for both of these guys. But Neil Dariush had really been on fire all the way up until June of this year when he lost to Char Charles Oliveira, Chucky Olives, via first-round TKO at UFC 289. Uh, he had won a bevy of fights in a row, had Benil Darius. He seemed like he was creeping up on contender status, but he also seemed like the kind of guy that the UFC was just going to keep, make, keep fighting until he either lost or they couldn't deny his contender status anymore. And this Charles Oliveira fight was kind of the one that we felt like he had to win to perhaps be granted entrance into these elite ranks of lightweights who are in and around the title picture. And he did not do that. No. He was defeated quite soundly by Charles Oliveira. So you figure this is kind of a must win for Benil Dariush if he wants to have any chance to get back to that level, even that he was at before, not even necessarily championship level. And on the other side of the cage, Armand Sarukian, he had that fight uh, against Mateusz Gamrat back in June of 2022. That he lost via unanimous decision. Did he though? Did he though? Did he though? Mm, since then, he's piled up a couple of straight wins, but against guys who are at least do not have quite the name value of Benil Dariush. So this is one for both these guys that my official analysis is it would be better for them to win than lose. Yeah, this could be a, a big fight for both of them. The, the Benil Dariush one, you're right that it did seem like the UFC is just going to make him keep fighting because shit at lightweight, if you're not already a superstar, you need to win like 10 in a row. And you put it as he was soundly defeated by uh, Chuck Yalos. Another way to put it is he received a country ass kicking. <laughs> it was one way traffic. He just got trucked in that one. And it went not only just like, okay, you didn't win, but it, it set you back, bro. To, to lose like that on, on that level of the stage. And you're right, though, that Armand Sarukian, like, he could have easily got the decision in that Mateusz Gamrot fight. And if he had, then he'd be sitting here right now on, what, like an eight-fight winning streak? Which, that's the territory you get into at lightweight, where we start to think about maybe you're a title contender. So, I mean... I'm willing just for the sake of the narrative to go ahead and call him a guy on a hot winning streak. And you come in here against Benil Dariush, if you manage to beat him and look pretty good doing it, maybe even get yourself a finish in a main event of a fight night card that people might actually watch, you could be in a pretty good spot. You could be knocking on the door. You could be one or two injury cancellations away from getting that phone call. Yeah, yeah. That ain't bad. 
Uh, I'm surprised a little bit to see the odds in this fight because Armand Sarukian is nearly a three to one favorite. Ooh. He is minus two seventy eight. The comeback on Benil Dariush is plus two twenty five. So I thought it would be more competitive yeah. than that, and uh, I'm a little bit surprised. I guess I'm, I don't know if I'm surprised that Sarukian is the favorite, but I thought it would be closer to even money than one guy being a three to one favorite. But these odds makers anymore, they generally know what they're talking about. They do. They do tend to know what they're talking about. I want to note something from Aron Sarukian's Wikipedia page before we move on, Chad. It notes the the one sentence under the heading grappling career says, Sarukian won the expert middleweight division of Naga Los Angeles on October 1st, 2023, submitting all three of his opponents. Now, again... Really got to suck if you roll up into the Naga tournament being like, okay, feeling pretty good about this one. Trained hard, ate right. Oh, who is that in my bracket? Armand Sarukian, noted UFC fighter. Fuck. <laughs> Guess I'm not winning that Naga belt or Naga sword or whatever they give out these days to take home to the gym. Uh, maybe I'm shooting for second place here. But at least, at least he was in the expert division. We've seen enough of these dudes out here as brown belts and whatnot, winning worlds and shit. At least you're up there. You know, no one could be like, okay, hey, I'm I'm an intermediate, I'm a novice, whatever, going up in here and Armand Sarukian is just trucking fools. At least he's in the expert class. I'll give him I'll give him some doodaps for that. If I were in one of those tournaments, one of the first things I would do is head to the bracket and look through it and be like, is anyone in my bracket? categorized as a master of sport yeah. <laughs> by the Russian government. Is anyone a master of sport in either freestyle wrestling or MMA, both of which Armand Sarukian is? So that would be the first thing. They shouldn't be allowed to do this, right? There should be somebody who sits at the door and is like, are you a UFC fighter? Or no, or they should just ask you, like, what is your occupation? And because the people you want to face in grappling tournaments, the people who should be there facing you in some just like regular people grappling tournament, lawyers, baristas, bartenders, insurance salesmen. That's what we're doing. If some, if you're like, oh, uh, my occupation, professional cage fighter. And we go, okay, guy, (laughs) what do you think you're trying to pull here? You want to just, you, you want some hardware to put in the trophy case? Is that it? You want to feel like a big man? Is that what you want? Get out of here. I should note, it's probably not the Russian government that makes you a master of sport. So if anybody knows who it, who it is, they can shoot us an email. But I don't know. I'm just spitballing over here. You don't think it's Vladimir Putin reviewing the applications for master of sport? <laughs> Going through a stack of folders on his desk? I don't know. Uh, we got to move on here. I had hoped that we would get into a deeper discussion about how Silver Fox ass Benil Dariush is only 34 years old, but we don't have time for that right now. We got to get into some of these questions. First, though, Ben, uh, I have an update about my 11-year-old daughter who you may remember stole my Fulton and Rourke fragrance discovery sets and used them without asking. Oh, no. What? What now? Well... It turned out that she liked the Narada scent so much that she went back into my bathroom and stole the entire full-sized bottle and has basically appropriated it as her own. Uh, I'll be honest, I don't know what to do at this point. Well, Chad, 
I guess she's in good company because it seems like that's something your 11-year-old daughter has in common with Men's Health Magazine, The Wall Street Freakin' Journal, Katie Couric, and GQ. Did you know that? They all love Fulton & Rourke fragrances. For more than 10 years, the guys at Fulton & Rourke have been making unique fragrances using innovative formats. You make a good point, I suppose. Fulton & Rourke's solid fragrances are super travel-friendly and allow you to smell great without being overpowering. And the new line of extraits last an average of 12 hours every time you use them. That's hard to beat. Especially when you find out that the guys from Fulton & Rourke are MMA fans, they're longtime listeners of the CME, and they're rad dudes, frankly, who we have met in person. We absolutely vouch for them 100%. Yeah, hop on over to their website this week, FultonAndRourke.com, where they have all kinds of great Cyber Week deals, from free candles to mini bar soaps with your order. And as always, CME listeners can save 20%. With the code CME20. That's CME20. All right, we're going to get into these questions here. Normally, we save Tracy Dickinson's question for uh, a little bit later on in the show. Tracy over on time, the Patreon. Frankly, yeah. yeah. We're going to roll out Tracy time earlier in the broadcast than we normally do this week. She writes Chris Curtis announced he deleted his Twitter or X or whatever account leading up to his fight in January, basically saying that a lot of MMA fans are toxic and he needed to focus on his training. And in response to the post about him doing this, there were a bunch of MMA fans being toxic and proving why he did exactly what he did. Are you surprised that more fighters don't do this type of thing? And more importantly, why aren't the majority of MMA fans more like the CME community so they don't feel the need to do this? Let's take over the world. Uh, That's a nice shout out to the community of listeners we have here at the co-main event podcast. Uh, So thanks to Tracy Dickinson for that. This Twitter question, I think applies to more than just fighters. Yeah. And I totally understand why Chris Curtis or any other fighter would piece out the Twitter verse, especially at this point where I'm not totally sure what function it uh, holds in any of our lives. It is basically ground almost into dust under the leadership of Elon Musk. Uh, the stuff that used to be cool about it barely exists. Every time you post, you get a damn spam tweet in your mentions that just has a list, just a list of people's uh, Twitter accounts, or at least I do. Uh, I understand, like, you know, most MMA fans, or I'm not going to say most, I, I think it's, I hope that it's a vocal minority of MMA fans online who are acting like jackasses to these professional fighters. So I understand why Chris Curtis would bail and why he would realize that maybe this wasn't the best use for his time. And as for the the other part of, of Tracy Dickinson's question, why do other MMA fighters stay on here? Frankly, this is a question I ask myself all the time. And I think maybe it has something to do with the fact that we don't want to give up on whatever modest followings that we have acquired, even though I don't know what those followings are doing for us anymore, given that it's pretty much the worst place to try to advertise your wares, yeah, your your work, advertise any kind of work or products or sponsorships that you may have in the case of these fighters. And it seems like they are actively working to make it worse, actively wor- working to make it worse to share for sharing the things that you do. And so I don't know, man, it's just like, it's like stubbornness or habit, or we don't want to leave our, our followings. I'm not totally sure what it is with Twitter at this point. I think it's a combination of those things, but I absolutely understand it for fighters. 
especially because, for one thing, we live and have lived for a while in the age of not of like sponsorships for UFC fighters not being much of a thing for most of them for all but the very top guys because you can't sell the patches on your shorts anymore you can't sell the the t-shirts and the hats a lot of people listening to this a lot of people have come along as fans of this sport and have been fans of the sport for years probably don't remember an age when you could walk out covered in your own sponsors that you or your manager or at times your wife or your dad went out and sold for you and made a bunch of money selling for you at times way more than you were getting paid from the UFC. People were making big money for a while there on sponsorships. And so there was a reason to really self-promote and to put yourself out there and to engage with fans because that would lead to money in your pocket. The UFC took that away. And so that avenue is gone. If you're talking about you just want to self-promote for the sake of making yourself into more of a thing that people want to see, that people are invested in your outcomes or your fights, uh, that you hope will lead to some sort of career success or longevity just because this is a personality-driven business. As you mentioned, Twitter just doesn't do that as well anymore. The engagement all the way around is down, especially if you're not paying for the site. The people who are paying are often the worst people who are then replacing all the other voices of potentially interesting people who have too much dignity to pay for the shit. You are just not as able to do the thing that it gave you before. And so what use is there? Plus for the fighters, I I think sometimes about, I remember talking to Nate Marquardt about this, who made the point he didn't. He was talking about doing interviews, doing a ton of interviews, all the different websites, and how he told his manager before one fight, like, pick a three or four most important interviews you think, and I'll do those, but I don't want to do all the ones. And his reasoning was that you're sitting down, especially at, a, I think it was a kind of a rough time for his career when he had lost a few, maybe lost a couple big fights. And he's like, I know people are going to want to ask me about that, going to be want to be like, hey, do, is this a must win for you? Are you teetering on the brink? Are you in a bad spot and having to prove that you're still relevant? Like, I know that those are the questions that they're going to ask me over and over and over again. And I I don't want that negativity to get in my head. Because even if I'm going to sit there and answer the question by saying, no, I am not, I'm fine, everything's going great, I'm going to continue to be great. After enough times of people saying it to you, I fear that it will sort of just seep into my subconscious and I, I don't want that. I'm worried about that. And so like, I don't want to subject myself to it. And I was like, okay. I mean, especially if you're balancing the need for exposure against the the desire to keep your, your mental space strong and keep it your own, really. Um, these days where the, the exposure is of more and more questionable of value, I can understand how you would make the, the scales would tip a little bit and you'd be like, this is not worth it for me anymore, especially maybe leading up to a fight when I'm really, when I'm trying to stay focused and I'm trying to be mentally strong. Like why subject myself to all that negativity when there's the, the potential rewards have only decreased. Yeah. All right. I want to get in some PFL questions here since that is a thing of, uh, of some uh, topical import since they just had their, their championship last week. We get this one from Mike Smith who writes, so the finals of the 2023 PFL season went down this past Friday and four of the six champions 
were uh, ex-UFC fighters, including the Canadian gangster Olivier Aubin Marcier, Larissa, Larissa Pacheco, Impa Kasangane, and Jesus Pinedo. This raises two questions for me. First, do the champs really win $1 million just for the finals, or is it like the old Ultimate Fighter six-figure contract deal where that's their actual total winnings for the season? Even if it's the latter, that's an average of $250,000 per fight, which has to be many multiples higher than their UFC purses, which leads to the second question. How many current UFC fighters were screaming into their pillows when they learned that someone they beat in the UFC just made more money than they likely will in their entire careers? Now, if I recall correctly, it is, it's a million bucks for winning the tournament, right? Or is, is it 250 for each fight? I think it's for the, you get it for winning the title. I believe it's for the, the tournament. Um, but it's, it's not the entire season though. It's not like, like those exist separately, uh, from what I recall. So yeah, it's not necessarily just for winning the final, I don't think, but it is not like stretched it's not like it's not as bad as the ultimate fighter contract where that is really like a contract potentially worth six figure yeah. i mean you get that million dollars i mean we heard it from sean o'connell and from other people and honestly like this is an important point that i saw several people bring up in the aftermath of these fights um especially like the point i believe uh jack slack made about uh, like when people were talking shit on Impa, they being like, oh, okay, big deal. You go over there and PFL you won as if you weren't on the receiving end of that great Joaquin Buckley highlight, like one of the greatest MMA highlights of all time. You got kind of posterized. Don't act like you're great now. And Jack Slack replied and he was just like, I just want to circle back to the fact that Impa just won a million dollars and Buckley, who knocked him out in that. UFC uh, highlight doesn't get a penny when the UFC wants to replay his greatest knockout of all time. And in fact, yeah. Joaquin Buckley was telling us how he was still working as the night manager at Walgreens, right? And like the the fact that like a lot of these UFC fighters can look at people and be like, you know, we were just talking about Armand Sarukian. He got a win over OAM, the Canadian yeah. gangster. Uh, I bet you Armand Sarukian never took home a million dollars uh, for uh, one fight or or a span of a, a few fights. They're looking over there. They got it. It's got to be in the heads of some of them at this point to be like, hold up. It kind of seems to me like maybe the path to making serious money in the sport does not necessarily run through the UFC and does not yeah. necessarily run through being the absolute best in the world. Yeah, especially for a guy like OAM who has now won the PFL championship twice. Yeah. So he's got that two mil. They got to give him that they two gotta mil. Got to give him that two mil. That's his quote. Uh, all right. Well, I wanted to get into a couple more PFL ones, just sort of about some of the decisions that they have announced. So we got this one from Aaron Ortman, who writes, does the PFL's recent purchase of Bellator revive the possibility of Kayla Harrison versus Cyborg? Or is the PFL really going to go ahead with having Cyborg fight Larissa Pacheco uh, first? Why they do that? Now, I did see this, Ben, uh, from Don Davis of the PFL saying that they do want to have Cyborg fight Larissa Pacheco first before she would fight Kayla Harrison. Kayla Harrison is out here saying she she wants the Cyborg fight. You know Cyborg will fight whoever. She doesn't care. She's just going to come in here and do her cyborg thing. And this does seem like a weird decision for me and kind of like a holdover of uh, 
the old school PFL mindset, right? Where it's like you win the tournament, you're the champion, you get the big opportunities where just from a pay-per-view standpoint, if they are indeed going to be breaking out this new pay-per-view uh, division or schedule or whatever you want to call it, you absolutely should have Cyborg fight Kayla Harrison first, no matter what the the records are, no matter if Larissa Pacheco beat Kayla, Kayla Harrison, the money fight is still Kayla versus Cyborg. Yeah, this seems like have we learned nothing from cautionary tales like the Strike Force Grand Prix. Because remember how we booked it, where we were like, well, we don't want to put in the first round Fedor versus Alistair Overeem, even though that's where we want to get to eventually. And so we're going to have Fedor fight Fabricio Verdum in the first round. And he'll obviously win that one and move on and face Alistair Overeem in the next round. And it didn't go like that. You... You can't miss an opportunity in this sport to make a big fight, especially when you're PFL, and it's not like you have endless amounts of big fights that you could make. If you have one that's right there, especially to be able to make it right away and get people excited about what you might be able to do with the rosters of both organizations. Like that's that's a great way to remind people like, hey, we just did a big thing and it has the potential to change the landscape of this sport somewhat. Here's an example. Here's this big fight where there was a barrier to getting it made before, and we have removed the barrier. And you'll get people excited about it. You'll just get a lot of attention that you weren't going to get otherwise. Instead, what if you mess around and you get Cyborg beat by Larissa Pacheco? Then what? Yeah. Then what you going to yeah. do? Another fight between Kayla Harrison and, and Larissa Pacheco? Like, yeah. if you can make a big fight, make it. Don't think too far ahead. Don't outsmart yourself with some of this stuff. Yeah. I wanted to get this... This one, too, from Daring Dave, the radical dude, who writes in, Stop the presses. The PFL doesn't have bantamweight or middleweight divisions. At the risk of exposing myself as a bitch-ass casual, this was news to me. Then Don Davis himself notes the PFL has possibly the two best fighters in the world at those weights in Patchy Mix and Johnny Eblen, but says the PFL won't add those divisions until 2025 because they need to, quote, build up those divisions for those guys to compete in. This sounds like a terrible idea to me. This is terrible, right? Please discourse. Now, I had to dig up the MMA fighting story from Jed Mayshew here. And here's the quote from Don Davis. He writes, there's two big divisions, 185 and 135, where Bellator has probably the two best fighters in the world. Patchy Mix could beat Sugar Sean O'Malley. He doesn't have the hair, but he's got better fighting. And I think most people think uh, either that's a good fight or Patchy's a slight favorite, but it's a damn good fight. Same with Johnny Eblen. Those are two divisions which may be the number one in the world. We didn't want to come out with those divisions this year because that wouldn't serve those guys. We're going to come out with those divisions probably in 2025. So we need a full year to build divisions strong enough that they would make sense in a league season. Wait, so this, our this concern, is the dumbest fucking shit I've ever heard. Our, I'll be honest with you. The, what, what You're telling me what would serve those guys is for them to spend a year of their prime of this time when they may or may not be the absolute best in the world to spend a year and change doing nothing, not fighting, not making money. That's what would serve them. That's our big concern. Cause that don't make yeah. no fucking sense. Chad. No, this is crazy. And again, it strikes me as like PFL thinking that hasn't been updated given the new acquisition of Bellator. Like, 
what are you gonna do with this with this season with the you you really think you got to go through a full season to get me a fighter that i want to watch fight johnny eblin or patchy mix no hire one guy well also if you go get one guy and do a fight between those and i will watch it i will watch it we don't have to do the season we don't have to do that just get one guy and do that fight well and if you just absorbed the fighters from this other company and they had the divisions then don't you also now have the divisions like if they had the guys then now you had the guys right like you're right. I mean, I agree just in general principle with you, even if you don't have all the guys, even if you only had those two guys, uh, create the division and then sign the guys like create it and they will come. You will you will be able to build a division. And even if it's a weak division and they smash everybody in it so much, the better for building those guys up in terms of like touting them as some of the best in the world. I I don't understand how you're just like. The thing that would serve these fighters the best is if we just took two of the best guys we have, two of the just all-around best fighters we have, and just sat them down until 2025. That's crazy. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Here is one from Eric in Toronto who writes to us, PFL, formerly WSOF, just bought Bellator. These guys need a name change, and now's the time. UFC has the brand recognition, and Ultimate Fighting Championship sounds awesome. I'm reminded of former professional wrestler Jim Helwig, who originally chose the pseudonym Dingo Warrior. As the story goes, Vince McMahon said no, Ultimate Warrior, and legend was born. Not convinced? Say it in your best Vince McMahon voice. The Ultimate Warrior! That's not bad by you. That's not bad. Now say Ultimate Fighting Championship. It hits a certain way, right? Yeah, I'm not going to say that one. Meanwhile, PFL just sounds weak. MMA forum users spell out the sound of it as piffle. Translation, nonsense, insignificant. Then piffle says they're reimagining Bellator and calling it Bellator International Championship Series, which acronyms out to bitches. B-I-C-H-S, right? Got it. It's only a matter of time before the internet catches on to that, and then it's game over, bitches. Uh, How about this? The tried and true something FC name format, format, using the W in World Series of Fighting to make WFC World Fighting Championships. What do you think, Ben? We we realize that PFL has already changed its name once, right? Yeah. It's rebranded one time. It was WSOF. World yeah, Series no, of, in the well, question. Actually, yeah. I mean, it's changed it a few times, right? Because it was World Series of Fighting, and then we went to like WSOF, trying to abbreviate, it, and then we went to PFL, whole rebrand kind of thing. You can't keep doing this. Yeah. Let's not yeah. fixate on the name so much. You can't change the name. Over. It's not like putting out a bad package in the wire. You can't just be like, okay, this is the pandemic now. Okay, you know, this this is the A-bomb. Like, no, you got to just stick with PFL now. Come on. Like, the even the stuff about, like, oh, we're going to run, like, the Bellator International Series kind of thing. It's just, like, MMA fans are not that into following very complicated naming and structural changes. You're going to confuse them. You're already, you got a lot of things working against you by just not being the UFC. Don't make it any harder. Let's just stick with this for a while, see where we can go. Although, I mean, it does remind me of an era where 
There were so many FCs out there. There are also so many FLs, FAs, that you could just kind of throw together a combination of words and maybe convince me that there was at some point an MMA organization named that. Oh, there absolutely must have been, right? Uh, here's the thing, man. It doesn't matter what you name your organization. Somebody online is going to make fun of it. Yes. There's no name you could come up with. Some dude on the internet wouldn't come up with a hilarious name to call you based on that. You're saying you, you can't well... just come up with one thing where every unanimously MMA fans right. across the board are just be like, that's fucking sick, bro. Yeah. No, no, you can't. You can't do it. You might as well not waste your time. I actually don't think there's anything really wrong with the PFL, especially I feel like on ESPN, the the professional fighters league kind of sounds like a legitimate thing that especially if you weren't an MMA fan and you found it, you would be like, oh, this is a thing that seems credible. I'll watch this. And it's also, I think, true that you shouldn't necessarily worry about what the hardcore dudes on Reddit slash MMA or whatever are saying are MMA. You should worry more about the people who are going to be watching you on ESPN and ESPN plus. Those are the people you should worry about. That's not to say totally ignore the hardcore fan because you shouldn't do that, but you also shouldn't be sitting around being like, Oh guys on the message boards are calling us piffle. What what are we going to do? Like, eh, I don't know, man, you can't stop them. And like I said, no matter what name you come up with, they're going to make fun of it. At least they're calling you something. At least they care enough to call you. We got this question from Brandon Boyd, who writes, everyone talks about how great Rousey was and how she was such a pioneer for women's MMA, but why don't we give Misha Tate the same props? She started at the same time, was bantamweight champion, and didn't hide her head in a pillow after losing the belt. She's taken her L's in stride and keeps trying to reinvent herself, so why don't we give Misha Tate the credit she deserves? Uh, Misha Tate fighting this weekend on the UFC on ESPN card she is taking on uh julia vila so she's i mean i think that's a good point she's still out here doing it also uh and i feel like misha tate gets some credit for being a pioneer when you bring up misha tate it's probably one of the things you talk about but we do focus on ronda rousey a lot more i think the reasons for that are obvious in many cases but i will also add to them that ronda rousey beat misha tate when they fought and so that probably has a little bit something to do with it, but Peter I think twice, is right. in fact. Um, but yeah, I mean, this question makes more sense to me now that I have found out that Misha Tate is fighting this weekend, which that shouldn't happen. I shouldn't just find out, you know, uh, looking at the Wikipedia page that Misha Tate is fighting. I think she is a big enough deal that, especially it's wild to me that she'd be on the prelims. And then I'd find out that she's fighting. And not to correct you on a fact, but... She started fighting several years before Ronda Rousey got into the game. So she, she's been fighting at, since 2007, back in the hook-and-shoot days. Like She was an OG of this shit, and it deserves the respect that goes along with that. I think maybe part of the reason that she feels a little lower wattage for a lot of people these days is, I mean, for one thing, like we talked about, there's probably a lot of fans who are fans now who don't remember when Misha Tate was a big deal, weren't around then, and they may only have been around for the coming out of retirement era of Misha Tate, where we felt like we kind of had closed the book on it, and she got her farewells, got her roses and everything, and then came back and was like, "Eh, actually, I could do this some more. And we went okay. And, you know, hasn't quite met with the same success since coming back, so that's got to be part of it too. But I'm glad you mentioned the part about how they both handled defeat. Because that is one of the things that 
maybe because it happened so soon after Ronda Rousey did the thing of running away and hiding her face behind the pillow, when Misha Tate showed up after, was it UFC 200, where she fought, uh, Amanda Nunes got her nose just all smashed to hell, lost her title, all that stuff. Or maybe that wasn't the one where she lost the title. I think she lost the title to Holly Holm, right? But anyway, she showed up at that one afterwards, sitting there uh, at the... No, she won the title from Holly Holm, showed up afterwards after losing the title to Amanda Nunes at UFC 200, a big-ass show, and answered questions while sitting there with the ice pack on her nose and blood still leaking out of it. And just like, and answering questions and just like, I'm going to sit here, I'm going to hear what the reporters have to say, I'm going to tell you what I think about it, while she's trying to sniff the blood back up into her nose. And you're just like, that is the total opposite of somebody who was like, I want to talk to you when I win, but when I lose, I will literally run away and not face any of this. Like she was just going to be like, hey, you fight, you win sometimes, you lose sometimes, I'm going to sit here, I'm going to, you know, take it either way. Like that. I thought was an amazing moment, Amisha Tate. And plus, she was just a part of some of women's MMA's big moments that people who now just take it for granted that women's MMA is sure is in the UFC. It's a prominent feature on just about every UFC fight card. And they don't realize that was not always the case. And Misha Tate was around doing it while the UFC was saying, no, never we will never, ever do it. And the rivalry that she built up with Ronda Rousey in Strike Force. Uh, played a big role into changing some minds about that. And so, like, you you kind of don't get the huge Ronda Rousey pop into the UFC if not for that rivalry with Misha Tate. So she, she was a part of that, and I think she does deserve the respect for that. We got this question from Notch Johnson, who writes, It's been over a year since Michael Chandler's last fight. There's still nothing on the books with the Irishman. Is he ever going to get his red panty night? If he does, will it be worth it, considering he probably could have fought at least twice over the last year? Dude is 37, and as we all know, Father Time remains undefeated. This has to be a legitimate concern for Michael Chandler at this point, right? Where he's not even guaranteed a fight with Conor McGregor at all, and here you got John Kavanaugh most recently showing up on the MMA hour, basically being like, oh, you know, Connor might fight in the summer where first we were talking about uh, end the, the end year. of the year. Yeah. And then we were talking about spring and we were saying maybe UFC 300. And now he's like, he's not going to fight until summer. Meanwhile, you got Connor doing all of his Connor stuff while and out seeing way, seeming way more interested in uh, launching his forged Irish stout brand than coming back to fight anybody. If you're Michael Chandler, man, I don't know exactly what you do, but this is, I would be a little bit concerned if I were, were Michael Chandler. I would have done Ben concerned a while ago. I mean, we sat here, it feels like months ago, and we're like, I don't know, Mike. I don't know if you're getting this one. I don't know if this is actually going to happen for you. And the longer out we get from that Ultimate Fighter season, the worse the chances get that we're actually doing that fight. It kind of doesn't make any sense to not do it after you spend, like that's the whole idea behind the ultimate fighter is to help you not only generate easy content, lock people into long-term, extremely cheap contracts, but also to promote a fight between the coaches. 
But the longer we go without that fight happening, the less reason there is for it to happen. And there's constantly going to be so many other people who are looking to make a fight with Conor McGregor. Plus, don't you think if the UFC is looking around and being like, okay, who could, who would be a big fight for Conor McGregor? Since you never know when the ne- next one is going to be the last one with that guy. Don't you think they're looking at Dustin Poirier and being like, if cool Dusty P would do it, that one probably gets a way bigger response just given the history between them. Yeah. Uh, this question comes to us from Scott who writes, I saw a stat over the weekend that Stipe has only competed in main event title fights since 2016. And holy cow, that's actually true. In the last seven years, he's only ever fought matches for the belt. Also fun. Stipe has zero wins over any ranked heavyweight competition currently in the division. So he's this older fighter who only ever fights for the belt, but also has fought nobody current in the standings. That's weird, right? Now, I would just like to say that this is true, but also a bit of a misleading statistic. Because the only reason that Stipe hasn't fought anybody who is in the current UFC rankings is that all of his fights dating back to January of 2018 are against either Daniel Cormier or Francis Ngannou. Right. So let's not pretend like Stipe is out here fighting nobodies or like he hasn't done anything, right? In fact, you go back to September of 2016... Actually, let's back it up. May of 2016. And here are Stipe Miocic's fights. Fabricio Verdum, Alistair Overeem, Junior Dos Santos, and then Francis Ngannou, Daniel Cormier, Daniel Cormier, Daniel Cormier, Francis Ngannou. (laughs) So, like, he fought everybody who was there for him to fight. Especially in 2016. I mean, and people now might want to be like, oh, Fabricio Verdum, Overeem. But in 2016, those were the big-time dudes to fight. Yeah. Well, and now he's he's 41. And so I think this point is well made. He hasn't fought that often. He doesn't seem like it's it's killing him not to fight. He's got other stuff going on. Uh, but they most recently tried to put him in a fight with John fucking Jones. So like clearly the guy in the UFC's opinion is if not the most relevant heavyweight the most marketable heavyweight that they could put John Jones in there with. So I agree. Stipe's long in the tooth. He doesn't fight that often. He doesn't get stuff on the books that often, but like he's a still a major contributor and has been for the last, you know, at least five years and longer. Yeah. I mean, when you say like Stipe hasn't fought anybody who's currently ranked and that, that does sound like you're trying to say Stipe ain't fought nobody when in fact he fought everybody, and then those people moved on as Stipe alone lasted. And, you know, friends Ngannou moved on uh, out of his UFC contract and onto boxing. Daniel Cormier moved into the commentary booth. The fact that Stipe can still do it, as a lot of these other people who are peers of his aged out and, and declined and, and moved on for other reasons, that says something positive about Stipe, honestly. Uh, and plus, let's not forget that when the opportunity to get something on the books after that heavyweight fight, heavyweight title fight with John Jones fell through. We had to put together an interim title fight and the UFC went, well, it would be insulting to Stipe to even offer him a chance to step in here. And Stipe was like, I don't know. You could have, you could have called me and we could have talked about it. And so it's not as if like he's sitting there being like, nah, I don't want to fight nobody. Like you're right that it doesn't seem to be driving him nuts, at least from what we hear publicly from him. It's not like he's being like, this is bullshit. Give me somebody, anybody. Uh, But 
it does seem like, you know, we're, I, I understand the clock is kind of ticking on Stipe, um, but let's not also act like it's not pretty impressive how long Stipe has managed to hang around and be a relevant top heavyweight. This I know this was a like a video or a gif on the internet, and I sent it to you. But Stipe's uh, yes, reaction yes. to Tom Aspinall knocking out Sergey Pavlovich was it was amazing and vintage Stipe. Where first of all he's sitting there in like I think like a leather blazer and a black turtleneck, a black turtleneck, and his yeah. glasses, mm-hmm. and he's and he's uh, he sees Aspinall knock out. Sergey Pavlovich and at first he's like he makes a little bit of a face like wow yeah. that's like an that eyebrow raise is kind of what you get out of him yeah and then he leans over to I believe his wife the woman who's sitting next to him and he says wow but other than that no reaction none whatsoever it's like he saw a dog do an impressive trick on the sidewalk mm-hmm. it's like someone was like look if I pretend to shoot my dog with some finger guns he plays dead and Stipe was like okay show me and then they did it and he's like oh Wow, yeah, no, that's that's a good trick. Other than that, nothing. A guy who has seen so many heavyweight fights that he's just pretty much like, huh, well, that was a thing that happened. Stays on a pretty even emotional keel, I would say. Yeah, but he also doesn't get too I, high. I do appreciate him sitting there in his black turtleneck looking like a fucking European hitman. Love everything about it. Yeah, uh, we did get a question from our guy, the big worn dog, who says thinking about PFL's brand plan isn't keeping Bellator and doing five products too confusing. Yes. And then he also notes, how the hell do you how the hell is Cyborg versus Kayla not one of the things you announce right away? So he's pretty much on board with what we said earlier. Uh, we got this question from Cal Ellerson, who writes. Tony Ferguson copped a plea and had his DUI charge dismissed and instead pled no contest to something called wet, leckless, wet, reckless driving. Uh, that just sounds gross. Does having the DUI thing gone make you feel any better about Tony's return to the cage or does it just uh, free up more time for Hell Week training? Uh, I mean, it's good not to have this thing hanging over your head, right? If you're Tony Ferguson... That's, I guess that is, would be the conventional sports wisdom and maybe conventional sports wisdom does not apply to Tony Ferguson, but my guess is better to not have the DUI charge both on your record and happening while you're getting ready to fight Patty Pimblett than not having it there. I do agree that I do not like this term. I don't know how this term wound up in the law. It sounds wrong. I looked it up just now. Wet and reckless is is reckless driving involving alcohol or drugs. More importantly, it is a lower charge than a DUI and therefore carries lighter penalties, including shorter probation, a shorter DUI class, a smaller fine, and no immigration consequences. Uh, It just, I don't like it, Chad. I don't Mm -hmm. like it. Um, But, Let's be clear that the thing that we were concerned about in regards to that incident for Tony Ferguson was not necessarily that we thought the legal punishments were going to be so severe that it would interfere with his fighting. It was what that told us about where his head was at shortly before a fight while he's supposed to be in training camp, basically. It it wasn't that we were just concerned like, oh man, the legal consequences are going to mess with him. It was what's going on in your life that this is a thing that happened at this particular time. Now, maybe part of why you throw yourself into your extreme Navy SEAL hell week training or whatever is 
to redirect some of that energy so that you keep yourself out of trouble, leave yourself too exhausted. Uh, some of the downtime, maybe uh, you get yourself in trouble. I, shit, I could relate to that. I, I could understand where that, where that comes from. Clearly, that's a man who recognizes that some things were going wrong and he's trying to fix it. And the way Tony Ferguson knows how to fix it is to get more extreme in his training. That that makes sense to me when I put myself inside Tony Ferguson's head. Whether that will be the thing, though, that leads to success inside the cage, I don't know. And it's tough, especially because it's like, you look at him and you're going like, I, I believe that you you want this, that you're training hard, especially now that you're trying to figure out a solution. I also believe that some of this is just going to be a result of getting older as a fighter. And you worry like, you know, the result of a fight tells you some things, but it doesn't necessarily tell you everything. And yet it is going to be the metric that other people use to decide whether you are washed or not. And... And it sucks, but as Greg Jackson used to say, you know, what else do you have uh, to tell you anything other than the result? Like the result matters so much for your career. The result is going to be used to dictate the the future path of your career. And yet you also have to know there are so many ways to win and to lose. And it doesn't necessarily mean that every decision you made leading up to the fight was wrong. Yeah. Uh, We did get an email from our guy, Jart Harley Barvis, who again points out the PFL's fumble in the bag by not having uh, Kayla Harrison versus Cyborg. We got this one from Figurin Dan, who writes, In the last couple of weeks, Dana White was separately gifted $500,000 in poker chips and a brand new BMW. My question is, why? The mind reels when considering the sheer number of better ways to use that money. Please discourse this absurdity. Did you see this video of him talking about being gifted the BMW? Which, by the way, he's talking about how awesome this BMW is. And the main thing he is focusing on is you can just push a button and the door is open, bro. And it's just like, or you can just do this with the hand. Like, it's already basically pushing a button and the door is open. Like, it wasn't a strain (laughs) on me this morning when I had to drive my daughters to school to like, pull on the door handle to make the door open. In fact, it would be kind of inconvenient for me to push a button and then stand there while the door slowly opens and closes. Like, but I loved our guy, Chuck Mendenhall posted. This This is how I saw it. He posted it and he was just like the feel good story of the year. Dana White finally catches a break. (laughs) Someone finally reaches a, a handout to help Dana White. And it is crazy. This is not just a Dana White thing. I remember a friend of mine, uh, who, uh, had a, a relative who was like, you know, sort of ter- tertiary rich and famous sort of noting that one of the things that she noticed that seemed counterintuitive was how much free stuff rich and famous people get, which they're the ones who don't need it. And yet everybody lining up to give them shit all the time. Yeah. And yeah. like, that is wild. And for somebody to be like, you know what? You know, Dana White needs is for me to just give him a luxury car. Yeah. Uh, First of all, I just want to point out that if you push a button on the remote control key fob for my 2017 Toyota Sienna, those side doors pop open by themselves Mm -hmm. and slide open. So more evidence uh, that me and Dana White basically the same. Living more or less parallel lives. Yeah, Uh, there is no possible way that any kind of BMW means anything to Dana White, right? 
Like it's a gesture. It's man- the thought that counts, Chad. <laughs> you could give that man ten BMWs, and it would probably not even scratch the surface of anything meaning anything to Dana White car wise. Uh, my guess is, why do people give him these gifts? To curry favor. Yeah, would be my immediate guess. Uh, let's see here. We got a question here from our guy, the Darkwing Duck, who writes, so it turns out Michael Page is still a free agent and is trying to decide between the PFL and UFC. If you were MVP, where would you go and why? Ben? Bro, I'd go to the PFL if I were him. I mean, if you go to the PFL, uh, I mean, I guess maybe it depends what weight class you want to fight in. Because if you want to fight in middleweight, what I've learned here today is they ain't got it and don't, and they are not in a rush to get it. So maybe like that would be an issue and that would be a sticking point. The thing is, if you go to the UFC, it's not like they're going to treat you like you're a real special find, right? Like they might in fact want to overmatch you right away, want to put you in a bad fight. I don't know if they are necessarily going to want to use you as a sparkling jewel in the crown. Where the PFL, they might. They need some people yeah. with name value. So, like, they might be willing to uh, really treat you like they want to be in that business. Uh, for the UFC, I don't know. I, I also wonder how much of it is just for Michael Venom Page personally that he wants to be able to say that he fought in the UFC. How many years did he spend? As people asking him what he does for a living. Oh, I'm an MMA fighter. Oh, like the UFC? Well, like that, yes, but not technically that. You, I'm sure you get sick of that. And maybe that he he wants that that recognition, kind of saying that he, he got in the UFC. But it's also like, I mean, at his age, what are you going to do? Go sight like an eight-fight deal with the UFC, and then you're locked in, and then th- there goes your options for the future? Like, I would think you would just you might get a little better treatment all around and end up with a better all around deal with the PFL, but who knows? Yeah. Not to sound like a broken record, but I will just reiterate that my advice is mostly go wherever they are going to pay you the most money for your next fight. And that could be even more true for a guy like Michael Venom page, who is not getting any younger and is probably closing in on the end of his MMA career. But I would agree with you in principle that it seems like Michael Venom Page would be a bigger deal for the PFL than he would be for the UFC. And I think the PFL would be more likely to feature him in a way that is perhaps better than like the main event of a fight night card at the apex where he is probably the betting underdog. Yeah, that's just my guess. Uh, We got this question from Stephen G over on Patreon. He writes, per the bloody elbow, uh, Vince McMahon is selling 8.4 million shares, 8.4, I think it's 8.4 million dollars of shares, oh, no, no, 8.4 million shares, wow, that's a lot of shares, yeah, it is. Uh, of TKO for around 700 million dollars. Remembering what happened the last time he cashed out a big chunk of stock, the XFL, I wonder, what gimmick and sport do you <coughs> think he's going to announce and when? I'll go first, spring 2024, women's lingerie golf tour. The double entendre practical double entendres practically write themselves. Okay, they do, now that I'm thinking about it. Um, yeah, that is a lot of money to be like you 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 need that money right away. You need to cash out right away. Because what you got, you already got a ton of money, man. I it does. Do you wonder if the other guys involved in TKO, all the Endeavor people and everything, were they looking at him being like 
what you got cooking, Vince? What you got up yeah. your sleeve? Why yeah. you need $700 million right now? <laughs> He's just going to buy a bunch of BMWs for Dana White. <laughs> a fleet uh, you of know what? BMWs. Doors I all open and all by themselves and shit. <laughs> My 2017 Toyota Sienna <laughs> does the same thing. Uh, I saw some video of Vince McMahon and The Undertaker at the Francis Ngannou fight in Saudi Arabia. Yeah. And and Vince McMahon is looking old. Like he is looking, he's walking with a cane. He just looks much older. Seems like he is. He has lost but a lot of that so muscle youthful. mass. It's so dark and lustrous. <laughs> and youth. What are you talking about? Yeah. And also the uh, the hair over his lip is also looking quite youthful. But like he's just he's getting up there, man. Dana or uh, Vince McMahon. You know he's not involved in creative stuff. I don't think anymore with WWE. I think that was one of Ari's first things was to kind of pull Vince off the creative team, if I'm not mistaken. And so maybe he's just. Uh, Maybe he's just stalking the nest egg for all we know. Uh, or maybe he's looking around for uh, for some new business opportunities. And you got to be at- doing something. You're not going to live long enough to spend the money you already have without the $700 million. You got to have something in mind for that. That's true. Uh, well, as you and I both know from our Instagram feeds, one of the most vibrant sports uh brands in the world right now is slam ball yes so let's say vince mcmahon wants to pump some money into dusting off slam ball and turning it into one of the leading sports properties in the world you imagine i mean you don't need 700 million dollars to help out to to make a, di- a difference for slam ball if you rolled up to slam ball and were like i'll give you two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, you're they're like you are immediately our our primary investor what time would you like your breakfast sir 700 million seems like seems like a chunk of change you're not going to tell me you're just you're renovating the summer home with that you got something cooking yeah uh mike d wrote us to say ksw 89 is saturday at 11 a.m in the one true time zone airing on kswtv.com for $10. Mike, does Mike work for, for KSW? He seems like we're getting a good plug He's in doing here. doing a good job. Saturday, kswtv.com, $10 for KSW89. Uh, very much worth the... Oh, he does. He must. He says very much worth the value. So I think we are getting an advertisement okay. here. Uh, KSW cards are pretty damn fun. God damn it, just pouring See, it on, you know. Be, I we're not going to be able to sell sponsorships and ads anymore if we are doing it for free when somebody sends us a listener mail. <laughs> uh, we kid. We kid. The main event is Adrian Barton. It's, it's still going. Okay. It's still going. Barton Sinsk versus Al Sol. Okay, whatever. He even includes uh, their records. Yeah, he does. 14 and 0, 18 and 1. Uh, Barton Sink is the current welterweight champ. Saladin is the current lightweight and featherweight champ. If Saladin wins, he can become the first fighter in a major promotion to be a triple champion, let alone at the same time. Let's say he wins. Where do you rank this in MMA accomplishments with it happening in KSW? Is it less impressive than any of the UFC's two-time champions? I think it's more impressive, but UFC fanboys will surely say it isn't because it's not the UFC. I'll be perfectly honest. I, while I likes me some KSW, and if if it appears before my eyes, I will watch it. I will watch the giant robotic spider 
come down from the ceiling while a lady plays Russian folk songs on a violin, an electronic uh, violin. But I don't know enough about the competitiveness and or depth of any of these KSW weight classes to tell you what becoming a three weight class champion means in the grand scheme of things. It sounds impressive, but I don't, I don't know that for sure. Yeah. I mean, I don't know specifically enough about what he's faced so far to tell you how impressive it is. But I do think in any organization, especially one that is, you know, and has been a going concern that has produced some, some fine fighters that we've seen go on to have success elsewhere to prove that there were, there were good fighters in the KSW, uh, I think being a three-weight champion is still pretty impressive. That's just, that is not a a span that you see many people manage to bridge and be successful doing it. So, like, you know, in kind of any organization, that's, that is pretty cool. And I do appreciate how KSW seems to be, at times, one of the last MMA organizations still thinking about production value and giving you a show. Yeah. Uh, We got this question from Dan Alexander who wrote, what the fuck is going on with McGregor? How things have changed. When he was a likable rogue in his early UFC run, he said shit like this about Trump. And then he includes a YouTube video link where I believe Conor McGregor says Donald Trump can shut his fat mouth. It's the quote. Now he's all about sucking up to Putin, Donald, and inspiring racist thugs to riot in his homeland. Well, I guess he soaks up the sun somewhere on his yacht. Please discourse. Uh, I have not seen any of the stuff about Conor McGregor playing nice with Trump or Putin. I did see, uh, his Twitter feed this last week or so was very, uh, focused on a fairly high profile and horrible crime in Ireland that was committed by a, a, an immigrant, a person not originally from Ireland. And it seemed to touch off, uh, some anti-immigrant sentiments, from Conor McGregor and other people in Ireland. I believe there were some protests that maybe turned into riots and McGregor tried to distance himself a little bit from the violence, but at the same time is talking about how the Irish government needs to make changes on many fronts, including its, its open immigration policy, as he called it. Now, Man, he's just I'm trying to an... keep Hamza Chamaya from getting so mad he flies to Ireland again. <laughs> Uh, I'm not an expert on Irish politics, obviously. I'm not an expert on Irish social situations, obviously. Uh, So I don't fully grasp all of this stuff. I hope that I characterized Conor McGregor's statements in the proper light. And I would just say, as kind of like an overall comment, I don't know that we should pay attention to the coherence of many of Conor McGregor's statements, period, and political beliefs might be real high on the list of stuff that we shouldn't necessarily be taking commentary from Conor McGregor on. You know, I, I would, if he were to give you opinions on luxury yacht upholstery or something like that, or like which type of Rolex is best, I'd be like, okay, there, I believe the man might be an expert. There, the man has an informed opinion. Yeah. Most other things, maybe not. Yeah, and I would also say uh, my guess is that his thoughts are somewhat malleable. And maybe what is best for Conor McGregor might figure into some of that stuff, especially when it pertains to like making nice with powerful people. And so, you know, it's it's probably not the most coherent and deeply 
ruminated thoughts yeah. from Conor McGregor coming out on his Twitter page. I also sometimes wonder, people who are themselves rich and famous and have come in for a good deal of criticism, and in his case, criminal investigations uh, over the same exact type of allegation over and over again, and maybe feel themselves like set upon or besieged, even if they have in fact brought almost, if not all of that on themselves. Don't you think that they often find a kinship in other people who are like, oh, and they're also always saying bad shit about this guy. So he must be like me. And there, and I think that I'm pretty good deep down, even if nobody else thinks so. So therefore uh, he is a kindred spirit. Like that seems to happen a fair amount in some way or some, some form or another. And I, I think there might be some of that because it's just like somebody, you know, it, you see how quickly it happens where somebody gets accused of like sexual harassment or, or something or something along those lines. And suddenly a whole bunch of people jump up and can't wait to support them and be on their sides who didn't care about them before. And you're like, yeah. how is that the thing that makes you think that now you like that person because of the accusation leveled against them? Uh, I think that there's for some people who have found themselves in that situation and put themselves in that situation, uh, they they develop some kind of like attraction for other people in that situation. All right, we're going to squeeze in one or two more and then we got to get out of here for this week. Chris Kirk on Patreon wrote Eric McCracken, uh, the greatest lawyer on earth, estimates the worst case scenario. Uh, for the UFC in the antitrust lawsuit could be $4.5 billion. Does this make it a good or bad time for Endeavor to get out of the MMA biz? Are Saudi Arabia the only players who could currently buy the UFC and swallow that extra cost, probably paying it from the profits they've already made by owning the sport of golf? Or does this make the UFC currently unsellable? Love you both both equally. Well, first of all, if you're dealing with... uh, government funds like Saudi Arabia and or uh, United Arab Emirates, which might be UAE, UAE and, and Abu Dhabi probably would be a first suitor that I would look at. Uh, I don't think any anything is going to be a real deal breaker. The fact that they would have to pay four point billion dollars probably wouldn't wouldn't make the UFC unsellable, especially if you're dealing with those kind of people. But this the ultimate question here might come down to whether or not Endeavor wants to be in the UFC business long term, because they are making close to a billion dollars in revenue every year with something around like 55% profit margins. So depending on what a payment structure or uh, anything like that might look for that 4.5 billion. It would be a huge loss. Yeah, it hurts. But it was. It would also be something that they could probably deal with over the next handful of years. Yeah, but I don't think that that's necessarily the worst case scenario. I mean, that's just the financial hit, which again is significant. Uh, ain't nothing. But it could also fundamentally change the way the sport operates. The 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 way you're you can do and can't do contracts. That, I think, is the bigger potential threat of something like the antitrust lawsuit to the UFC. Because don't forget, I mean, how you ended up with an NFL Players Association is through antitrust uh, lawsuits, essentially, over the course of like a decade. And it has the potential to really reshape how the UFC is allowed to do business. I would think that would be 
a much bigger concern because right now, like you said, the reason why it's so valuable to its owners is because you get to make so much money while having to pay out so little money. You get pro sports revenue without having to pay pro sports salaries. And if the antitrust lawsuit ends up changing that, which it very well could, then that I think would be the bigger concern for them. I mean, you know, along with the financial hit that you're going to take uh, just because of what you owe in back pay, essentially. All right, we're going to do two more, uh, maybe relatively quickly here. We got this question from Sean Singletary on Patreon, who basically asks, uh, what are the things that sour us the most while covering MMA? And then uh, Ryan Robinson follows it up with, what are the things that keep you in the game? And Sean basically says, there are so many things that have relegated me from a diehard fan to a bitch-ass casual. Your podcast has been a great reason to stay connected, so thank you for that. I'm standing in the doorway just looking for another reason to leave. Uh, And this is something that we have talked about a lot before, so I would just say quickly, the nature of the UFC's schedule and the extent to which it has watered down the week-to-week quality of the live events would be a first thing for me. And also as we watch the political axis of MMA seem to drift further and further into bizarre right-wing politics is the second thing that's a big turnoff. And the thing that keeps me here is that I still believe that the, the actual physical sport itself as it takes place inside the cage is fascinating and gets better and better all the time. In fact, I've said this before, but the 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 idea that the UFC has su- somehow made its content less fun to digest, to actually watch, while the sport itself has gotten leaps and bounds better over the last decade is amazing. It's amazing that they managed to do that as far as just a presentation and a professional sports league goes. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree that the what you can actually see, especially on a big time fight night one of those where it really feels like number one versus number two a fight you've been thinking about where you're going i don't know how this is going to turn out and i can't wait to find out the the thing that mma still offers you in a way that other sports don't is this sort of that there's this big build-up there's all this sort of talk beforehand uh there's a lot of aspects of this sport that you can kind of fake until the cage door closes, and then you can't. And we find out the truth a lot, and we get just sort of a, a hard, clear answer that you can't avoid, and you can't run away from, you can't spin. And there are fewer and fewer things in our culture that feel like they offer that. And that is something, you know, there's the, the feeling of you don't know what's going to happen, and you got to sit there and watch it. You could feel the excitement and that anticipation in the air. MMA and the UFC still give you that. Yeah. I, I agree that one of the things that sort of burns me out on it over time is for one thing, how at this point, just nakedly and unapologetically the fighters get exploited. How, if you've been following this sport for enough years, you just feel like you see the same things happen to the, to different people over time. You just, you remember when it was somebody else who went through this exact same arc and it's like, we learn nothing from it. The guys that do learn something, by the time they've learned it, it's too late to do anything. And nobody else seems to learn from their example because they're pretty sure they're built different. 
and it's all going to turn out different for them, and it doesn't. And to see that happen over and over again is pretty demoralizing. Also, how many of the fighters and fans uh, end up being terrible people, that's kind of demoralizing as well. But you're right. And as to the list of things that keep me hanging on, you know, we talk a lot about like the community that we get to engage with through this podcast. Like that community surprises me in pleasant ways all the time. And that's a big part of what keeps me going. So it's like when people tell us like, oh, your podcast helps me hang on to fandom and sport. Shit, it helps me too. Hearing hearing from the, the people uh, who follow the podcast and, and interact with us, that helps keep me hanging on as well. Yeah. All right. Last question this week from Ryan Robinson. Uh, where did it go here? We've got questions all over the place here. Ryan Robinson, senior CME watch party host writes, let's talk about the sphere to which I say heavy sigh. Uh, he, he goes on. I think it's one of Sharon Stone's most interesting performances. Okay. I see. And it creates it. an eerie mood that reminds me of event horizon. What's that? The sphere is a performance venue in Las Vegas that Dana White is obsessed with running a show in. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, this whole thing is a circus spectacle. Why not put a heavy emphasis on the spectacle? It's just one step closer to the episode of Star Trek Voyager with the rock. I'm sure you guys, Ben and Chad know the episode, but for everyone else, seven of nine and Tuvok are kidnapped and forced to fight in matches broadcast in hologram projection at futuristic fight venues. And eventually seven has to beat up former Calgary stampeder, Dwayne Douglas Johnson. I guess the question is why hate on more spectacle? And when can I watch UFC fights live on a VR headset from cage side? Uh, I was unaware that there was a Star Trek Voyager episode starring The Rock. I still can't tell if that's a joke or if it's something that's real. I guess I did my Are You Fucking Kidding Me about the sphere a couple of weeks ago, and it's possible that I veered too far away from the actual issue at hand because I said one of the things about the UFC is that they just do the same fucking show every week no matter where they are and it always looks the same and the truth is they probably have an opportunity to do a show at the sphere that is uh, visually different that the entertainment value and production value that they bring at the sphere would be uh, over the top and different and a huge spectacle and I actually don't think that there's anything wrong with that I guess one of the things that bothers me about it though is that it seemed like Dana White would do it not for the enjoyment of fans, but for Dana White being able to say, I did this. I put on the greatest spectacle in combat sports history and then probably produce an in-house uh, video where he brings up all the people that he thinks said that he couldn't do it when in fact no one is saying that. So that's the thing that bothers me, I guess. Uh, although I think to Ryan Robinson's point, sure, spectacle is great i advocate more for it if the ufc show at the sphere looks sounds and feels different give it to me yeah it's mine yeah absolutely that is the annoying part about the dana white's hyper fixation on the sphere is him acting like everybody like it's an impossible feat and it's like i don't know man if you two can play the sphere i'm pretty sure the ufc could get in the sphere and like if you're gonna do something cool and different sure We'll be all for. We were the ones like he's the one saying he wants to do the sphere for the Mexican uh, independent, the UFC Noche uh, event, which we single out as one where, oh, hey, it seems like the UFC is actually doing something different here. Please give us more of that. And then he's going to be like, okay, next year we're going to the sphere for it. uh, And I don't care what you fuckers say we're doing it. And we were like, the thing that we're saying is please do some of this stuff. 
Please don't just paint by numbers with all these UFC shows where it looks the same no matter where you go and who's fighting on it. Like, let's actually do some cool, fun stuff. So if you're going to go do some cool, fun stuff, I don't care if it's at the Sphere, I don't care if it's at T-Mobile Arena, do something. I'm all for it. Uh, Stop acting like you're, you're the only person who believes it's possible. You can put on a show at the Sphere. I totally believe that. Go do it. All right, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. Thanks to everybody for the great questions. We couldn't have done it without you. We appreciate the support uh, and your attention. We are back this week with some Patreon stuff. Ben is out of the office to, on Wednesday, so there won't be a live chat. But we're you're going to be back the rest of the week, right? Thursday, Friday? Yeah, I'll be back Thursday. Okay. Thursday, we've got doing the damn thing. And Friday, with the power hour leading into Benil Dariush's fight with Armand Sarukian. Check us out over there, patreon.com slash co-main event. Join the team at any of our three handy patronage tiers. As for right now, we're done. We're through. We're out. Imagine the fucking Condom Depot ads that they will be able to put up on the walls at the Sphere. It will be incredible. It's just huge ads for cocaine bear all over the walls of the sphere they can make it look like it is raining p3 protein packs in there logan paul drinking a prime energy drink mm-hmm. up there on the wall of the sphere will be absolutely out of this world and they're probably going to just put donald trump's face huge just all over the sides it's going to be great